If you have your Bibles this evening, I'd like to ask you to turn to Genesis. I know this is a shock for everyone. No, and I teach usually Old, uh, New Testament, but, you know, Dr. King, he ventures in the New Testament sometimes, so I can venture into the Old Testament sometimes, right? It's just fair play. Um, if you have your Bibles, I'd like to t- turn to Genesis chapter 3, and I'd like to read verses 1 through 7 with you this evening. Genesis chapter 3. I know we just sat down, but I'd like us to stand again as we read from our Lord's Word. Genesis chapter 3, and I'd like to read verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The word of the Lord. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And I ask, Lord, that as we pause this evening at these words and the significance of the events that are described here by our narrator, that, Lord, you would speak to our hearts, that you'd allow your word to become flesh once again and to sit beside us, to speak to us, to actually change us. These things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. The significance of this story is almost too hard to grasp. Through the serpent's temptation, Adam and Eve fell into sin. And through them, all people have fallen into sin. You know, sometimes when we read the story, we tend to focus all of our attention upon the role of the serpent. And then we try to see Adam and Eve in the best light possible. After all, they had no choice, right? The devil made them sin, right? Well, I believe that it would be a mistake on our part if we did not recognize the role of of the serpent within, um, or of Satan within the serpent. The devil certainly represents a powerful force which we must realize and which we need to resist but we would be wrong i think to think that humanity fell into sin simply because as flip wilson used to say the devil made me do it honey does anyone remember flip wilson here besides me Uh, there's a couple of us yeah adam and eve have no excuse serpent or no serpent they willfully disobeyed i'm reminded of the story of the little boy who had a younger sister And as will happen with siblings, then one day this boy became so angry at her that he went into her room and began tearing things apart. He messed up her bed, but that wasn't enough. So he stomped on the girl's dolls, but that didn't seem to be enough either. And so then he broke her play dishes and pulled all the hair out of the dolls' heads. And finally he was still so mad that he ran up to his sister and he just spit on her. Well, of course, the boy's mother came to him and she was very unhappy and said, Oh, Johnny, Johnny, why did you do these terrible things? The devil made you do it, didn't he? The boy looked at his mother and said, Yes, Mommy, the devil made me do it. He made me tear up her room, and 
He made me break all our dishes and pull all the hair out of the dolls' heads. The devil made me do all those terrible things. But mommy, spitting on her, that was my idea. Well, just like this little boy, we need to recognize that Adam and Eve are not guiltless in the fall. They are not coerced into rebellion. They rebelled themselves. When we look at this story of the fall, there are several interesting and tricky details which we shouldn't allow to slip from our awareness. Notice the serpent's role. Notice the serpent does not approach Eve and say, Hey Eve, why don't you disobey God? Go ahead, eat from that tree over there. Life's been pretty boring around here anyway, so why don't you take and eat some fruit and curse humanity forever? No, the serpent doesn't begin this way. Rather, the serpent begins with a subtle, deceptive suggestion. Come on, Eve, don't joke with me now. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And so Satan's deception begins. We have often heard it said that Satan is the father of liars. Well, we need to believe it. Satan is a liar. We know that this is true. But at the same time, we must not picture Satan as a big, dumb, bungling liar. He's a liar, true, but he's not a fool. He's very deceptive in the way he goes about his lies. Have you ever noticed, for instance, how the truth can sometimes be manipulated in such a way that it actually becomes a lie? I'm sure you're well acquainted with this very truly ingenious technique. I remember when I was a child that something in our house got broken. And so my mom came and asked me and said, Well, Danny, did, did you break one of my flower vases? Well, I answered in this way, Sure, Mom. Sure, I broke it. I break everything. Why don't you blame me for everything, Mom? Well, she seemed satisfied that I had not broken the vase. When, in fact, I had. I told the truth, right? I admitted it, right? Well... Unfortunately, these kinds of half-truths never seem to last very long. Mom wasn't very satisfied about this explanation very long, and I paid for it in the end. Or, to be a little bit more literal, I paid for it on my end, but that's another story. You know, half-truths are kind of like the candy coating that's often found around a bitter-tasting medicine. It might taste pretty good at first, but it always has a mighty bitter ending. This is exactly what takes place in our story here. Everything the serpent says is deceptively and bitingly true. But the truth, he says, is also misrepresented. And so it is actually a lie. Let's look at some of the truths, truths which the serpent said. First, he answers Eve when she said that they would die if they ate from the tree. You will not surely die. After Adam and Eve took and ate, did they die? No. They were still alive. Then again the serpent said, Your eyes will be opened. In verse 7, we see that after they ate, it is recorded in Scripture, then the eyes of both of them were opened. He was right again, so it would seem. Then he said, And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's where one major slip comes in. You see, a liar can deal with half-truths for a while without being caught, but sooner or later, 
a liar will have to out and out lie. Truly, Adam and Eve gained the knowledge of good and evil, but far from becoming like God, they became like Satan. For now, they knew evil. Now, there's a word in this passage which is, which is of critical importance. Now, I know how excited everyone gets when a preacher uses a Greek word in his sermon. I've used this technique a lot of times. And so I'm going to try the same thing with a Hebrew word. Um, could be that Dr. King will pick up a few pointers here, so we'll just see how that all goes. Don't hold your breath, though, right? Um, anyway. Um, anyway, the, the Hebrew word for to know is, now are you ready for this? It's the word yada. Doesn't that feel good? Yada. This is a curious word in Hebrew because its depth of meaning goes much deeper than the English conception of to know. In Hebrew, yada, to know, also means to experience. It means to experience. To know something is to become acquainted with that something. It actually means to participate in that something. It implies ability. As the great Old Testament scholar Wellhausen said, to know in the ancient world is always to be able as well. Thus, to know evil is to experience evil. It is the, the ability to act evil, to actually be evil. Listen to what Satan in essence says. Adam and Eve, do you want to know good and evil? God has withheld this knowledge from you. Why has God done this? This isn't fair. God must not love us. God is trying to hold us away from him. God doesn't want us too close to him. God's trying to keep us distant. God doesn't love you, Adam and Eve. God's trying to hold you away from him. Take, eat of this fruit. We read, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took and ate of it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate of it. Rebellion had run its course. Sin entered into the world. Where did it come from? How did it begin? Well, it began here with these thoughts, with these attitudes. Suspicion, jealousy, envy, rivalry, pride. And these was the beginning. God doesn't really love me. If he loved me, he would give me what I want. God doesn't care about me. He's trying to stay distant. Certainly he doesn't love me. You see, suspicion. Why should God know something I don't know? Why, can't he, why can he understand the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And I can't. Why can he have something that I can't have? You see, jealousy, envy. I want to decide for myself. I want to make my own decisions. Let me choose between right and wrong. Let me determine what is right and wrong. I can decide. I know as much as God does. I can decide as good and maybe even better than God. Let me do it. Pride. Who is God anyway? I'm as good as he is. He's trying to push me back. He's afraid that if I get too close to him, 
I might just take the whole thing over from him. I can do what God does. Let me be God. I want to be God. You see, rivalry. And so it began. Suspicion. Jealousy. Envy. Pride. Rivalry. The suggestion of the serpent had seemed so harmless. It had seemed so rational, so logical. But the candy-coated deception didn't last very long. You will not surely die, the serpent said. And for sure, they did not immediately die a physical death. But believe me, in that moment, they died. Spiritually, they died. And physically, they would die. Oh, the bitter sting of death. Now, they would die. Your eyes will be opened, the serpent said. And for sure, their eyes were opened. But what did they see? Nakedness. They saw shame. They recognized weakness and vulnerability. Oh, the bitter sting of opened eyes. The startling awareness of nakedness and shame. Now their eyes were opened to shame and nakedness. You will be like God, knowing good and evil, the serpent said. And for sure, they knew good and evil. But they experienced good and evil too. Yes, they had always known what good was. Good was everywhere. This was the world God had created, and it was good. Goodness was in the air. It was in the trees and the grass and the animals. Good was embraced in everything in their lives. But now, they knew evil. They experienced evil. And it recolored and corrupted everything. Every good is now shadowed by the stalking threat of an equally powerful evil. The precious utopia of the garden had been invaded and corrupted. Oh, the bitter sting of the knowledge of evil. Now they knew good and evil. And the potential for evil was now everywhere. They took and they ate. What an act. What a consequence. They took and they ate. It seemed so simple, so harmless. But oh, how significant. So little the act, so great the consequence. As Romans 5 tells us, Therefore as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. And so in the same way that Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned, so all people rebel and sin against God. Evil and corruption permeate our world. There's no escaping it. Suspicion of God. Jealousy and envy towards God. Pride against God. Rivalry against God. But evil is not without its consequences. Every day, every day, we hear of suffering and pain. We read about murder and corruption and death. We see pain and we experience pain. We hear of poverty and of suffering. We experience poverty and suffering. We hear of estrangement and loneliness and we experience estrangement and loneliness. 
Adam and Eve took and ate. And so do we also take and eat. And death and sin and evil are all around us. I'm often startled and amazed at the deep, subtle irony of the scriptures. You see, Adam and Eve took and ate of the forbidden fruit in order to live. They ate in order to know good and evil. They took and ate in order to become more like God, to become closer to God, to actually be gods. But everything they hoped to gain was lost. Instead of life, they received death. Instead of knowing and distinguishing between good and evil, they became slaves of evil and sin. Instead of becoming more like God, they were estranged from God and were cast out of his presence. What tragic irony we find here. But how happy I am that the message does not stop here. Humanity rebelled and sinned, but God still loved. God loved so much that finally he sent his son. God himself came as a man. Do you remember the, the accusing indictments which Adam and Eve hurled toward God? God doesn't love us. We want to live. We want to know good and evil. God is pushing us away. God doesn't want to become too close to mankind. God doesn't care. God reverses each one of these indictments through the gift and sacrifice of his only son, Jesus Christ. Whereas mankind doubted God's love, God loved so much that he sent his son. Whereas mankind accused God of wanting to push humanity away, God himself came to earth and lived among the people. Whereas mankind futilely tried to become God, God became man. Whereas mankind plunged into death by rebelliously clutching after life, Christ willingly chose death so that all people through faith in him might have life. What a reversal. What a divine reversal. Where sin did abound, grace abounded even more. This is the good news that we proclaim. It is for this that we truly give thanksgiving. Where sin once abounded, now grace abounds. You see, humanity fell in its attempt to know good and evil. But with knowledge came experience. And through Adam, we all experience evil with its sin and death. But now, God offers us an alternative. He offers us Christ. Through Christ, we once again experience righteousness and goodness. But we must know Christ. Yada, know Christ. We must experience Christ personally. And we must allow the death-resounding indictments of our lives to be reversed by God through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, this is repentance, a reversal, a complete change. Truly knowing Christ is to recognize our utter depravity, our utter sinfulness. And when we know Christ, he grants us the forgiveness and then the power to turn our backs upon our former way of life and to rejoin God in peaceful, restored communion. What a cause for rejoicing. This is good news. To recognize that God loves us and that he offers us new life in Christ. I'm awestruck by the amazing reversal that God makes possible in our life. 
I'm amazed at how often God takes the garbage and the mistakes of our lives and he reverses them. He completely changes them. But the more I've thought about this, the more I realize God does this all the time. I can't help but think about the story of Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph. Um, you remember what Joseph said to his brothers when they finally met again in Egypt. Think about those words. You remember that Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery because of their jealousy of him. When they met again in Egypt, Joseph had been elevated to the second most powerful position in all of Egypt. At that time, almost in the entire world. The brothers were terrified of the revenge they thought that Joseph would take upon them. But Joseph said one of my favorite verses, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. This is the essence of the divine reversal. I'm amazed how God so often takes those elements in our lives that were meant to harm us, and he reverses them and even uses them for the building of his kingdom. Does this mean that God wants us to experience things like drug abuse, destructive experiences, divorce, hatred in our lives? No. But I've seen him use them anyway. I've seen him use former drug addicts so that they could witness and help people who are battling drug abuse themselves. I've seen him use people who've been divorced in order to minister and bring healing to those who are facing divorce today. God doesn't want us to go through these kinds of troubles and sins, but God will use us anyway. Isn't that good news? It doesn't matter what has stained your past life. God can use you anyway. It's the miracle of his divine reversal. We see the same thing happen in the incredible way, in a very incredible way, in the story of the fall of humanity through Adam and Eve. Just think about what has happened. Adam and Eve took and ate. And what a consequence they reaped. Sin and death became their reward, and it invaded all of creation. They took and ate. It was such a simple act, but it was so difficult to undo it. Christ would have to face punishment and death before the consequences of their and our actions could be reversed. But now, the reversal is possible. Christ offers himself to each of us. He offers us peace. He offers us life. He offers us communion with God. Adam and Eve took and ate, and death was their reward. But now Christ offers himself to us. He holds forth peace and life everlasting. Think about what Christ has done. Christ offers himself, and then we hear him say, Take, eat, this is my body of the covenant. Take and eat. And so those words of judgment and damnation, they took and they ate, have now been transformed by Christ into verbs of salvation. Come, take, eat. This is what Christ has made available to us. This is what he's made available to us. And so this evening, let's ponder the divine reversal that Christ has made possible for us. Through his death, and even more so through his resurrection, Christ has made a reversal of our lives possible. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed. 
It doesn't matter what kinds of sin, rebellion, depravity that you have taken and eaten. Christ offers us redemption. A complete reversal through his life, through his body, through his blood, through his victory. Come, take, eat. Only Christ can take the pain, the death, and the tragedy of a day of, ex of execution and turn it into a good Friday. It's all part of his divine reversal. So what about you? What is there in your life that needs to be, that needs to undergo the divine reversal? Will you surrender to Christ? We have an opportunity this evening as we come, as we take, and as we eat. And so this evening, we are going to come. We are going to take, and we are going to eat at our Lord's table. We are reminded that in the same night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You see, the Lord himself ordained this holy sacrament. He commanded his disciples to partake of the bread and wine, emblems, emblems of his broken body and shed blood. This is his table. It's a feast for his disciples. So let all of us who have with true repentance forsaken our sins and have believed in Christ and the salvation, draw near and take these emblems. And by faith, partake of the life of Jesus Christ to our soul's comfort and joy. Let us remember that it is the memorial of the death and passion of our Lord. But it is also a token of the coming again of our risen Lord. Let us not forget that we are one at one table with the Lord. 